mother brain killed my baby. Welcome to Video Gameography, a podcast where we explore the most influential game series of all time, one game at a time. I'm Ben Reeves. I'm Marcus Stewart. And today we're joined by a very special guest, the GI alum and international man of mystery, Joe Juba. Hello. I like that. I like that. Thanks for having me. Put it on your business card. Do you still have business cards, Joe? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I have outdated ones. Yeah, sure. Actually, so do I. <laughs> they have my title. Just give me a call. Uh, don't call me on that number, though. And oh, and don't email me there. In fact, yeah. that is worthless. And don't call me that. Well, anyway, Joe, when we were like, hey, we're doing Metroid, a series on Metroid, as you say, exploring every game in the series, why they're influential, why they're important. I thought of you for this entry specifically because I know you're a huge fan of Super Metroid. One of, one of the biggest around the office back when you were going to the office, back when we had an office. So <laughs> welcome. Yeah, thank you. I am definitely a huge fan of Super Metroid. I think of, I think it's still not only my favorite Metroid game, but it's just up there as like in my top 10 favorite games of all time. For sure. And I would say, I mean, this is going to be a big episode. I don't know about length, but definitely just like importance because this game specifically is so influential in the industry and still remains probably the most popular entry in the series by and large. And I know pers- my personal take, it's like probably my personal favorite still. I don't know, Marcus, what's your uh, take on this? You played it, right? I did, but uh, it wasn't until years later. So I'm the, as we established in episode one, I'm the youngin. Like I think Super Metroid launched in 94. I was about six years old. When it came out, and I had a Super Nintendo, but I didn't play any of the Metroid games up to that point. So it wasn't until I think it it was on the Wii when it came to the virtual console that I played it for the first time. And at that point, I'd already played like Fusion, Zero Mission, Prime. Um, and, you know, I always heard like the legend of Super Metroid, but just didn't have access to it because, you know, my Super Nintendo was long gone by that point. And so when it came to the virtual console, I was like, oh, this is great. I can finally play this. I've heard so many good things. And loved it. Holds up incredibly well, at least in 2010 or whenever that was. <laughs> but I'm sure it's, I, I, it still holds up well. I, I fired it up on Switch uh, for a bit and was like, this is uh, fantastic. So I don't have the I don't have the sort of formative like memories of it like a lot of people do, like being blown away by it. But I definitely have an, a, a strong appreciation for that game. And then Joe would. We- did, were you there day one? Were you playing this right away? You know, I honestly don't remember the first time I played Super Metroid. But I, what I would guess is that it was before I actually owned a Super Nintendo, I had to rent my Super Nintendo from the local video store. You know, like you did, you know, you take it over the weekend. And I would always just I'd be eager to try out like every game on the shelf. So sort of indiscriminately i knew that i liked the original metroid but if i'm going to be totally honest my main experience with the original metroid when i like at that age was just entering in the justin bailey code and then running to the end of the game and finishing it so it's like for the original metroid i didn't really have a great sense of like the atmosphere and the exploration and stuff like that because 
I knew a cheat code and I just used that cheat code constantly. So once I once I started picking up Super Metroid, the name was familiar to me. But it wasn't until like, you know, like one of these times that I just kind of randomly was like, oh, Metroid, I'm going to rent that and I'll give it a shot. And realize that despite how it looks in screenshots, which you might just think it's one of a, a normal, just like, oh, this is like a 2D action side-scrolling shooter, like any number of games that you may have played on the Super Nintendo or even regular Nintendo, that it's actually like a surprisingly cinematic and self-driven kind of game. It's not about the the whole like beating level one, beating level two kind of things, which, you know, Marcus, you talk about coming to it later. I think that those are the kinds of things about the game that playing it more in the moment when it released, those were the things that felt like strange and kind of amazing about it to me. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Joe. I I played it when I didn't even play it when it came out. Excuse me. I had played the original Metroid when it came out, but I don't know that I felt like a fan or anything. I, I don't even think I beat the original Metroid back then. I think I came back to it after Super Metroid and finished it because I loved Super Metroid so much. But I remember coming to Super Metroid a little bit later. I, it was like 96, 95, 96. So it was maybe like two years after the game came out. And it felt like I was going back to this relic of a bygone age because the PlayStation and the N64 were both out. And that was like mm. the new hotness. And I was like going back to play a Super Nintendo game, which, which felt old school. It's kind of amazing <laughs> that two years later it was already felt old. But I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, this is like the game I want to play. And there's all these like cool new games on CDs out there that I could be playing, but I'd rather play this old game. Yeah, well, and and to look at it, it'd be like, oh, look at these visuals. These visuals look so old compared to these N64 and PlayStation graphics that are so, <laughs> they're so modern and amazing. And now, you know, 30 years later, which which of those sort of types has withstood the test of time, right? <laughs> oh, gosh. Is there a single PlayStation game that looks good today? It's <laughs> fine, good. I don't know. Maybe some of those, like, 2D Mega Man games? Oh, sure. See, that's <laughs> cheating, though. That's like saying <laughs> Symphony of the Night. <laughs> looks See, great. there you go. That's exactly great. <laughs> yeah, but honestly, you can go back and look at Super Metroid just in screens. You're like, well, it's still, I mean, it's obviously dated. It's a pixelated look, but there's some visual aesthetic there that's that's pleasing yeah i i bet you could like put it in front of a younger gamer and just lies like oh this came out yesterday and just given the state of like especially the indie scene and everything kind of looking 16-bit like you could totally fool someone (laughs) (laughs) yeah this came out 2021 i don't think you're wrong i mean it's been a while since i played it for the first time but i went back and replayed it a couple years ago and i was like man this still feels pretty modern i think they they nailed it you could almost do you could almost do a spin-off episode of this podcast about just like why other games don't learn the right lessons from Super Metroid and why it's still despite all of the iteration over the years why they're why this game from 1994 still feels like you know uh top of the heap in so many ways yeah what do you think are the big outliers or like just common mistakes that games are still making in terms of the whole sort of Metroid style genre i think the biggest mistake is a focus on weapons and thinking that a weapon that opens a particular door is what makes 
this format interesting, right? The idea, I think that that people take is something like, okay, people like exploring in Metroid games, so we need to give them a door that they can't get through yet and then hide the key to that door. And I think while that's that's true to an extent, like if you look at something like Metroid, it's or like uh, uh, Super Metroid, it's like, okay, you have super missiles in Super Metroid. You can't open green doors until you have them. But it's like super missiles also are good for more than just opening green doors. They're, you know, like they're a a useful weapon in boss fights. They help you get other like secrets hidden all over the place. And I think that's the key to Super Metroid specifically is in addition to all of your abilities sort of facilitating that sense of being able to reach an area that you couldn't reach before. They also just feed in to Samus's like overall power, overall capability, and like your overall sense of mobility and uh, you know like combat skill. All of the powers you get sort of reach into all of those areas and feel fun, rather than just hey, I got the blue gun that opens the blue door. Super Metroid, especially Metroid, did this a little bit, but like Super Metroid was just really clever about how it gated off content you would have a little bit of like okay now i have the gun that opens this door but there were also areas where it's like here's this really giant chasm that now i have the ice gun and i can shoot enemies freeze them and use them as like a stepping stool to get up top there was a lot of like cool things like that where you're like oh now i have this thing that opens up this area and it's not just a door it's like some other hurdle that i have to overcome and in some ways the hurdle was fun to overcome because it was also a platforming challenge or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I, I think it also that also ties into the idea of uh, Super Metroid not just giving you weapons to solve these problems, giving you speed boost, giving you grapple beam, giving you you know a suit upgrade that is resistant to lava, a suit upgrade that lets you move freely in the water. It's not just about making you stronger. Like, like, or giving you a better gun to shoot or even a different gun to shoot. It gives you all of these other options that just make, you know, I think that's part of what makes Samus feel cool is all of the cool different stuff she can do. It's not she has a wave beam and an ice beam. It's that she can roll up into a tiny little ball. She has that, like, awesome screw attack and, you know, things like that. The sort of, like, more unconventional powers that you get, I think, are what make Super Metroid specifically, but in general are also what make for a good formula in a game that emulates Super Metroid. 100%. You would think as a designer, you'd be like, well, a suit upgrade, that's not sexy. That's not something we should put in a game as a reward. But when you get that suit and you can finally walk in water and you're not encumbered, it's amazing. You're so happy to have that. Yeah. Even just visually, like, you know, a lot of games you get a power and you you know, it doesn't really show up on your person. It's like, oh, this thing's in my inventory now. But to see Samus actually physically change, I'm like, oh, she's a little bigger now. Or like her color scheme. Yeah. You're calling her a big girl? And like, even that touch is just really cool. Like, okay, like I look cooler than I did before. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into it. Cast your mind back to 1994. As Marcus said, you were, you were what, a 21-year-old? Yes, I was uh, buying a 40s at the corner store in my paper bag <laughs> hiding them from the cops 1994 is a pretty decent year for games actually i'd kind of forgotten about some things but that was the year that donkey kong country came out 
which was another hmm. huge game for the Super Nintendo. It was the year that Earthworm Jim came out, one of my favorites back then. Earthbound, love it, classic. Doom 2, Sonic 3, System Shock 2. Uh, it was the first Warcraft. It was the first Elder Scrolls, so games that went on to become this, these giant juggernauts that are still around today. Looking back, it's it's pretty influential year. And then just to like set the scene a little bit, you know, The Lion King was out. Remember The Lion King? Mufasa? Yeah, the first time we uh, we as children of the 90s had our hearts broken right. and had to, had to confront death for the first time. Yep, yep. Schindler's <laughs> List was also out, speaking of death. Oh, we saw that right afterwards, yeah. Yahoo and Amazon were both founded, which I didn't realize those were founded that, that long ago. And the other important thing, just related to gaming, the PlayStation came out in Japan. So all this is happening, and yet like the next generation of gaming is it's basically arriving, which we can get into later because I think that kind of affected how well Super Metroid sold to some degree, unfortunately. The game was developed by Nintendo R&D 1. We've talked about previously Gunpei Yokoi was still the general manager kind of overseeing things, but the director this time was Yoshio Sakamoto, who we talked about in the Metroid podcast. This time he's the director, so this is like kind of his big move into the directorial role. Interestingly enough, he's still the producer on the series, which is kind of cool. So he's overseen the thing for a long, long time now. Nice. Uh, and uh, as we said, at least in the U.S. in 1994, but development began in autumn of 1991 which is kind of wild to think because that was, as we just said, when the console came out. So like console releases, they're like, we should make another one of these. You guys know why they decided to make another one? Why? Well, I mean, because people liked Metroid. Well, and Metroid 2, did Metroid 2 hit Game Boy at that point also? I think that would have been out. Yeah, it was already out. It wasn't, as we said, Metroid doesn't sell well in Japan, but it sells pretty well in the US. There was, I read a interview with Sakamoto who talks about he took a trip to the US and people were talking about Metroid or something. And he went to the store and there was like a clerk. Hey, here, let me find the quote, actually. Yeah, I read that. This is the interview where he's like, he went to visit um, the Nintendo headquarters in Seattle and they like took him to a mall and they were going up to people and being like, being like, hey, this is the guy who made Metroid. And they were surprised at the number of people that that like meant something to. They were like, oh, Metroid, cool. They understood that. Yeah, this was an interview from when the SNES Classic came out. They did a bunch of interviews with developers. It was pretty cool if you want to go look up those interviews. But yeah, this is Sakamoto. During that interview, he says, I thought we should, meaning I thought we should kind of make another game. But before we started development on Super Metroid, I took a business trip to Seattle, where Nintendo of America's headquarters is. The staff there took me to a shopping mall, and every time we went into a store, they introduced me saying, this is the guy who made Metroid, <laughs> and everyone knew about the game. Even a girl in a boutique who didn't look at all like a gamer reacted dramatically, saying, whoa. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of impressed that everybody at the mall knew what Metroid. I don't know what boutique yeah, he was right. walking into. Couldn't have all been game stores. <laughs> I also want... It's been nice to be introduced as Mr. Metroid everywhere you went. I mean, and how many of those people were just being polite? <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> no idea what he was talking about. But, oh, Metroid. Oh, uh, yeah. But uh, I mean, whatever. I'm, whatever the reason, I'm glad that glad that it turned out the way it did. That's the one with Mario, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Metroid Brothers, Super Metroid Brothers. There was also an interview with Retro Gamer 
where Sakamoto talks about uh, his his boss, the producer, wanted to do another Metroid because it was really popular in North America. And so his quote is, so he encouraged me to produce a new Metroid game with high quality graphics that were becoming possible thanks to the Super Famicom, the SNES back in Japan. Of course, I said, yes, I'd like to try to do that. The game design and concept had already been established before Metroid 2 was produced on the Game Boy. So they actually started work on Super Metroid before Metroid 2 had really been produced, but that was like a different team. And Sakamoto's team was really involved in that. So they were kind of like two separate projects, even though they released separately. I, I'm feeling that right now. I'm, I recently replayed, uh, or not replayed, I recently played Samus Returns, which is the sort of modern remake of Metroid 2. And it definitely feels like a thing apart from the Metroids that I know and love. Uh, but you can see them DNA there and you can see Super Metroid definitely like taking from the original Metroid and like we're going to one up across the board. Yeah, for sure. There was a, a quote I saw where they were talking about they wanted to make Metroid, make it better in every way, as we just said. But then particularly they wanted to make it more cinematic, which you can kind of see in the opening scrawl. You play it now, you're like, this isn't cinematic at all, but <laughs> that's what they were going for with the SNES. And I think that kind of shines through a little bit. Did you guys kind of get that vibe that it felt a little bit more film-like when you were playing it the first time? I mean, as someone that played it way later <laughs> and, had, you know, played games that were like, I guess, quote unquote, actually cinematic, like I thought that stuff was still effective for me. Like the, uh, you know, we'll get into it more when we dive into the lore stuff, but, you know, the baby Metroid stuff, like I thought that. I thought that hit as well, maybe, maybe not as well as it would have back in the day, but it still landed, I guess, for me. Like, oh, that's really cool. And like, I'm feeling like I, I feel emotionally attached to what's happening right now. So I think they pulled it off. Yeah, for me, the when I think of the cinematic element of that game, I think less about the giant text scroll uh, at the beginning and more about the atmosphere when you first land on, I can never pronounce this planet right. Is it Zebes? Zebes? I always, I always said Zebes. I always said uh, Zebes. See, now I feel like it's wrong. I never thought of saying it like Zebes. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, that might be right. It's called Zedis in the UK. Zebes? No, that's just a, that's a, just a bad Ben oh. joke. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, bad? No, so anyway, but the, the atmosphere when you get down on that planet for me is where like the real sort of environmental storytelling starts because there aren't a bunch of, and like you're playing a video game, you expect a bunch of enemies everywhere. And like, there aren't enemies for you to fight in that first part. It's raining. There's lightning going on. You get that awesome shot of like Samus's ship landing. So then you're just like, okay, what am I here to do? And you walk around a little bit and you walk through the, the old section of uh, Turian, the the uh, the last level of the original Metroid, right, where Mother Brain and everyone was, and you just walk through this like derelict, destroyed version, and it's that little like it's that awesome stroll down memory lane. This was the first. I realize I'm a real sucker for this, by the way. With like later things go back to locations from earlier things, right? Like, yeah. Like when you go, uh, like when you go back to Shadow Moses and Metal Gear Solid Four or something, that yeah, sense of yeah. like, I remember this. Like, 
It's it's such an easy. It feels so powerful, but it's such an easy callback. I don't know. Anyway, it is. You know, it's it's funny because I didn't even because I never finished to this day. I've never finished Metroid One. That's the only mm. one that I've played that I've never finished. So like when I played Super Metroid, I didn't get any of that until like I read it up afterwards. I'm like, oh, this was the place, and I just thought like, oh, this is just some destroyed lab, I guess. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you probably picked up on like the intro looks very similar and like you get the ball the morph ball in pretty much the same area like that 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 nod is pretty obvious i feel like yeah yeah i don't remember if i picked it up at the time but i mean i at the end of the day i mean i was really stupid back then ben i don't know if you were six doubt but if, so for me, that's where like that's where that cinematic feeling really really starts is like setting that sense of place by giving you those callbacks like of walking that line between it's a new game and you're going to do new stuff but giving you that like familiar foundation to start from and give you that sort of uh that story in the world to engage with i just i really really like that part well you mentioned the environmental storytelling which in my mind is almost like they said they were going for a cinematic thing but the fact that it's a game and it's interactive let them do something new i mean games weren't brand new obviously but they were doing something new with the genre i feel like just in uh how they 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 didn't want to have like a lot of tutorials on how they would teach you how to use some powers so you'd end up with things like critters on the planet who would run super fast and it was basically trying to tutorialize how you would use the speed boost or how you would use yeah that. oh gosh what's that that jump spark shot uh, or something? hyper oh the what do you mean the screw attack or the hype? The hype? Yeah, when jump? you just the kind of straight right, up jump, which I had trouble doing when I was a kid. But yeah, the when you would dash straight straight up after running, so stuff like that, or the the wall jump, like those monkeys that were jumping on the wall, right? Stuff like that. I don't remember other games ever doing that before this, and even like after this, there weren't a lot of games that were like, "Here's something in the world just showing you how to do this." Games don't do that a lot now. No, you're right. It's it's funny because even uh, when I played the game. It was still right before the explosion of Metroidvanias in the indie space. Like it was kind of like right on the cusp of that becoming a thing, you know, like 2009. Like Cave Story was out, and that maybe was the the vanguard there. Pretty much, yeah. Cave Story would have been brand new, and Shadow Complex only would have been what, like a year old, roughly. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, even when I played it, it was like, oh man, like the ability still felt super novel. And again, even in 2010, you're asking like, why don't we? do this more <laughs> well and then a million indie developers heard me yeah and well and i, I can't really complain like i i I, no. I love that formula especially when it's well done i want to back up real quick for a second too because i think ben ben you're smart to point out the like cinematic and environmental storytelling are, are kind of they do feel like different ends of the spectrum sometimes right one is sort of let players figure it out and the other one is sort of let's hold your hand for it but I guess for for me, what makes the atmospheric stuff stand out as cinematic is like I think that's where you that's where you really see this sort of uh, inspiration from like the movie Aliens. It was like that's clearly a big part of you know the the sort of drive thematic driving force of the game, and you know, and so when you think of, I think that sort of that strangeness of an alien world that uh, that sort of looming threat in the shadow that you can't totally identify i think that that opening sequence is really what captures that for me so that's why i make i think cinematic for that stuff because 
it literally makes me think of a movie, a specific movie. There was a quote, uh, again, from Sakamoto in that Nintendo interview I referenced earlier, the Nintendo Nintendo interview, <laughs> when they released the SNES Classic, where he basically calls out H.R. Geiger by name. And they were like, mm. yeah, we were looking at his stuff, and we thought it was really cool, and we wanted to make a game with it. But also, well, we're, we're making a game on the SNES, so obviously it's not going to be quite as detailed, and so maybe that takes some of the, the horror edge off, but it's still there under the surface enough where you're you have this haunting atmosphere and it's it's all there and i don't know if they do you think they fully understood oh samus is going to be alone and it's going to be creepy or do you think some of that was just limitations of games in the day and or do you think they knew going in no you're going to be isolated and it's going to be kind of like haunting and eerie boy i mean i think that the, like i think that has to be deliberately crafted at least in those in those first 10 minutes that you're playing. I just don't see, I don't see how that happens because, because it's such an unconventional way to start a game, right? It's almost like saying in, in today, like, do you think in God of War 2018, they meant to do a no-cut camera or did they just do no-cut camera by coincidence, right? It's like, it's such an unconventional choice given really? the- Really? You think that was an accident, the no-cut camera? <laughs> They're like we forgot to cut these these scenes apart. It's something. It's something that's so. It's so contrary to convention, and you know, and and so, um, you know, like when you notice it, it's it's surprising. I don't think there's any way that that you do that accidentally in order to make a choice. Like that just has to be a choice. I think. And also, I didn't realize the H.R. Geiger stuff, but now thinking about it, like you totally see it in those uh, the, what the chosen, chosen statues ruins. where you get your upgrades. I, I never connected that, but you're like, oh, absolutely. Those are super HR Geiger. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like HR Geiger through Nintendo lens, but it's, it totally works. There's no other Nintendo franchise where you'd be like, oh, they were clearly inspired by HR Geiger. Like there's this like, Met it's just Metroid. It's just such a weird one off because like Nintendo would almost never do this, uh, but it's cool that they did. I have another like note. Another thing that like helped set the game apart is like super eerie and haunting was the soundtrack obviously and let's see kinji yamamoto was the sound designer he got the idea for the main theme while riding his motorcycle home one day and he says he actually stopped <laughs> on the middle of the street and got out his recorder in traffic and he was like yeah he was like humming on the side <laughs> of the road just into his recorder like the main theme from super metroid because he was like so inspired like people were walking that by the... him, super weird da, da, yeah the main da, theme for da, yep. da. Supposedly, I love that song. By the oh, way. Well, that's the one I'm wondering about because the one Marcus sings is the one I think about is like a, the Metroid. Song. But then, but on the actual start screen of that game is the one. It just goes oh. like, whoa, boom, 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 boom. You know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm a terrible singer, but the dun, 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 like that one. Hold on, you guys sound just like Yamamoto. I always assume the main theme in my mind was either was the, you know, when you go to your ship to save and stuff like the that really calming and the I guess that's the upgrade music too, right? Yeah. The, I don't want to do it again, but, but you know. Well, yeah, what it just in general, do you guys like the music is does it have a lasting legacy for you guys? Yes. I I've always loved Metroids just across the board. This like, you know, they use a lot of the the same songs, but those the ones that everyone knows, I've always thought that soundtrack was uh fantastic and really set the tone 
for like like that sense of kind of it has like an alien not like alien the films but like that alien extraterrestrial vibe to it but it's also very subtle like it just feels like you know you're like you're you're isolated like you're trapped in this weird foreign land and you're on your own like i've always thought it conveyed that really well and it's just they're just nice tunes just in general yeah i don't really have a good vocabulary for talking about music it is not it is not one of my uh strong suits but i do i do think it's funny that like i said i'm playing uh recently playing samus returns they basically just took all of the music from super metroid and repurposed it for areas in samus returns so i think that tells you something about they're like well, we're not going to top this. Let's just take that fiery, <laughs> that fiery music from Norfair, and we're just going to put it here on this game. And here's the background music from Meridia, the water place. All right, now that goes over here too. And it's just like, I mean, there they might be new arrangements, and they are new arrangements of it or whatever, like new versions. But it's still, it is there. Those songs just again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you almost can't not use the music right i mean you can't make a metroid game and not use that you have to it's so ingrained in our consciousness that that's Metroid, and it's good like it's good music too so that's the other like it's like making a mario game and not using that main theme somewhere yeah, yeah. also metroid very underrated in terms of like it is a relaxing soundtrack hmm. like it's one of those go-tos i'll put on if i just want like you know like chill beats to listen to kind of a thing but like you don't really need to remix the Metroid soundtrack to make it that. Like, you can listen to it as is, and not even just in Super Metroid, but I think uh, Prime 2 is also fantastic for that. Like, there's something about it that just puts you in, like, a, a space. Like, I just, I'm just vibing out right now, even though I'm going around shooting aliens and, you know, getting into a crazy space adventure. I, I can't do that. I have too much trouble, with, especially with a game like Super Metroid, when there are games that I love. I can't just listen to the soundtrack ambiently because then I just want to play the game. Like <laughs> then I start paying attention to the soundtrack and then I start thinking about the game. No matter how much I enjoy the music, if it's like a game I really like, I just like connect to it too much that it's distracting in the moment. Do you any, does that happen to any of you guys ever? I used to do it because you have memories associated with it like you're almost reliving like oh i remember this part i was running through blasting this guy ah. this is the this is the zone where this thing exploded you have that thing with like movie soundtracks too you're like listening to the dress park soundtrack you're like now i gotta go watch this oh that's interesting yeah i don't really listen to movie soundtracks i guess i don't as much as games but there's a few i i usually listen to them more for like like workout like pump up mm stuff like really like big orchestral like i was like i'm gonna put on duel of the fates because that song just makes me want to go get into a lightsaber duel and go fight somebody right. <laughs> and i'm just gonna get on the treadmill and just blast that Is there yeah. a workout <laughs> program where you just do like lightsaber duels there should be right oh there has to be probably like there's probably like a fencing class that just puts a cool little light yeah. on your sword well, or I mean, something right yeah that's basically what beat saber is right you know, like lightsaber battles oh. the music that's not yeah. really bad but yeah, they, somebody should put out a battle version in Star Wars theme. You're welcome, Disney. <laughs> How do you say it? <laughs> yeah, so development of Super Metroid was pretty hard by all accounts. There's a, in that interview I keep referencing. You don't have to read it because we're telling you all the good stuff. Yamamoto says it was really hard back then. We had a nap room with lots of futons lined up and staff members took turns sleeping. 
Sometimes we didn't know when we had last slept. That was Sakamoto said. Sometimes we wouldn't know when we had last slept. When you said that um, film is like kind of a nice contrast to development cycles of today, because you said it took about three years from start to finish, which today that's like the average time for a game, really. Like that's not unusual. But back then, was that considered, I guess, considered like a longer time? Because games would take, what, maybe a year or two? It could take, start to finish, yeah, I remember, or? well, because they were like pumping them. I remember, was it, wasn't it the Crash Bandicoot games that they kept cranking out one a year for the first three? That would have been after this. Pretty much. I don't remember if it was exactly a yearly cycle, but they were pretty close. Yeah. So I, by all accounts, development was pretty hard. I think they had a similar issue like with the original Metroid. It was like nearing the end of development. And they're like, we got to get this done. It slapped it all together. There was uh, Yak Yamamoto again. On Christmas night, we were, of course, working. When Sakamoto and I had a late meal, we saw people having a good time on TV news. And we wondered why we couldn't do that, too. This is sad. And Sakamoto ch- chimed <laughs> in. He's like, yeah, you got angry at the television. He was angry at the people on the news who were taking ski trips at the end of the year. It's like, oh, man, this is kind of there's a lot of discourse these days about crunch. But you're like, oh, I, I guess it, it's always kind of been there, which kind of sucks. And then, like you hear about it even in Japan, that's something that they've they've struggled with. We got to get this done. We got to get it done on time. It's sad that in my mind, I picture them as like Arthur, like from the show Arthur. And when he would look across at the other class that was having fun. <laughs> but he was stuck in like Mr. Ratburn's like boring, hardworking class. And his like classmates across the way are like having cookies and taking naps. They're like, why can't we do that? Like, that's what I picture. Oh, yes, them. Arthur. Cultural reference. I understand. Yes, that's why we that's why I have the young and like Marcus on the show. So he can <laughs> talk it. about talk about cartoons that I did not watch. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur would have been real hot at the time. I think that's I, I think that's interesting, though, is like, you know, you talk about I I guess it's. It's good that at least today in the industry, we have this conversation surrounding crunch and an awareness of it. And, um, you know, I, I think a culture that is more willing to confront it than yeah. back in 1991, where like where, a Jap- you know, like a, a, a Japanese studio could just say. That's just like they tell this story like, oh, this is just how it was. We had a nap room. We were mad that we couldn't spend Christmas having fun with our families. And like, we laugh at it now because of the way that they're talking about it. But like, I guess I think it's, you know, I, I guess it's good that the attitude surrounding that has changed lately, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Attitude has changed. Hopefully the behavior is also changing. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know how to measure that from then to now. It's hard. Part of it's a byproduct of like, you always have like people who are really young in the I mean, i'm not going to try to blame it on everybody who does their job but like part of it feels like it's like you're young you're wanting to impress you're wanting to work hard and then you know bosses who can take advantage of that yeah like this is my dream job this is great yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah as you said marcus development took two and a half years so kind of a long time back then 17 people were on the dev team two and a half year development these days takes more than 17 people Unless you're like super yeah. giant or and, something, I don't know. <laughs> it's funny because, like, would Metroid does it come off as like because it came out later in the Super Nintendo's life cycle? Does it feel like a late console cycle game just because of everything that it kind of achieves compared to maybe earlier games on the Super Nintendo? I mean, not that there was. I mean, the game, you know, the system launched with Super Mario World, which was incredible, but like, like, could that have worked 
as a like for launch game doing the things that it does or does it you think it's like a classic example of like oh yeah this really pushed the super nintendo to its limits and it had to come out later in its life i mean i i think they definitely did use that time well i don't know like i mean i'm no developer i don't know all the ins and outs of it but i know um i know that there's some thing about the soundtrack right that like they sort of needed they're like yeah, I, 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 like I said, I, I'm bad at talking about music. There's some technical element of implementing the like sound effects and soundtrack that were, that was like better and required that like additional technical expertise with it. I heard that it was the largest game on the Super Nintendo at the time, like file size wise. At the time of its release, it was the largest SNES game. Mm. And I think there's an element to what you're saying, Marcus, of like, I think they did take their time well and it felt like they were squeezing every ounce of power out of this little system i remember people talking about super metroid and donkey kong country these games just feel unreal like games that don't feel like they belong on the super nintendo and i think there's another an, another wrinkle to that is just like the insane level of polish that this game has um like it doesn't feel like it, this game was clearly not rushed out the door there. You're dealing with like navigating, uh, like, like navigating an environment, like certain jumps and areas that you work around but with like pixel precision in a lot of places. Right. To be to be sure, like, OK, we have to make sure that someone can't get up here without before they get the high jump boots. And. So they're really meticulous about that. But at the same time, there are ways around those tricks. I feel like they knew that there were ways to sort of sequence break and get around these things. But I think there's almost a level of like, look, if people want to try that hard, no normal player is going to like sequence break this game naturally. You have to really be trying. And I feel like there's kind of an attitude of like, look, if you want to try that hard to do it, keep go go for it. They're 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 not going to patch out the ability to you know get this you know get the speed booster early or whatever, right? Yeah, right. that is fun. Uh, I mean, speaking to that too, like the world is getly designed, like the overmap, like they put a lot of thought into that, even to the point of there's you know one way entrances you can't go back the other way which kind of helps gate you in the direction you need to go it's like no you don't need don't worry about what's back that way you'll go and explore that eventually but first focus on this like this is where you need to go there was a lot of like systems that they put into the game to help guide players where they need to be rather than just like it's a giant world you can explore it all eventually but don't get lost they definitely helped you out that that way in a way that even modern games don't do or something like castlevania the Castlevania games, which I also love. There are times when you play those and you're like, I don't know where to go next. And I'm just going to explore this giant map until I find the next place to go. And that can be exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. There are also a couple of things I want to point out that I just think, you know, just sort of on this level of like, on the topic of things that are just very like detailed and rewarding in that sense, is like, there are just a couple little things in this game that blew my mind when I first played it. As far as the developers anticipating something that a player might want to try and then letting it work, like rewarding players by saying, hey, you know what? That did something. There are two that jumped to my mind right off the bat, and that's there's 
there's one part where earlier in the game, you just spend, you go through this tube. It's like underwater tube that just for like three screens, you're in the Meridia area before you're actually like exploring that area in full. But if you are in, in that tube and you plant a power bomb, it shatters the tube. You can't actually like get very far into Meridia from there. You're still kind of stuck. But just the idea of like, hey, you planted a power bomb here. So yeah, we're going to have this glass tube explode. And now you're just in the water. I thought that was awesome. And then mm. there's that boss, also the, that, the boss in Meridia, that uh, is that big, weird sort of like crawfish looking thing that grabs you. It, it's this big green fish thing that grabs you in, in these like arms, gross finger arms that are sticking out of its belly. And it sort of like sweeps you around the room and drains your energy. But if you use your grapple beam and zap yourself and like have your grapple beam connect with this like sparking electrical thing. I think that's Dragon. It actually conducts a current from the electrical thing through your body. It damages you, but it just deals ridiculous damage to this boss and kills it like in a heartbeat. Yeah, I remember hearing about that hack long after I'd beaten the game. And you're like, oh my gosh, you can do that? The fact that they thought of that as exactly. a way to defeat that boss is mind-blowing. Because I spent, I don't know how many bouts with that boss I spent just like firing missiles at it like a chump. And then there's the like, oh, that bite, that fight can take 20 seconds. All you have to do is shoot your grappling beam into this like open circuit and you electrocute the boss and he dies right away. It's amazing. Well, it is unintuitive because it starts to hurt you when you do it. So you're like, oh, I'm being hurt. I want to stop doing this. Yeah. You just got to like power through and, and he will die before you do. Yeah. Yeah. So. I had no idea that was a thing. I'm pr- I don't remember how I fought that guy, but I'm pretty sure I did. Oh no, that, you but, shot you I mean, shot I, missiles at him like an idiot. We all did that first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Like I'm I'm I love systems like that. Like that's one of the reasons why I love Breath of the Wild of like applying real world logic to games and like rewarding you for thinking about like realistically this should work. Yeah. And letting you get away with it and yeah, like rewarding like hey, I thought about a creative way to beat this guy that would make sense in real life and I it, and it worked. Like, I love that. I, I kind of want to, I, it's been a long time since I've played Super Metroid all the way through. I almost want to do it just to, to, to do that and see it for myself. I had no idea that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, you should look up a video for it. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. So, yeah, it's, it's fun that they did that for sure. So, yeah. That was the development of Super Metroid. Basically game came out March 19th of 1994. And then basically a month later, April 18th. 1994 in the U.S. I guess it's one of those things where localization would not have taken that long. Since you guys were like, I know you didn't play it at launch, Ben. It sounds like you did, Joe, or close to launch. Close, yeah. Okay, I'm always curious to like know, like, what was it like? Like, was this like a huge deal? Like, did they roll out the red carpet for Super Metro? Like, was this like the hot, like, here it comes, everybody? And then it was like, whoa, like commercials and stuff. Like, what was? Like, from what you remember, like, what was the kind of the marketing push for Super Metroid? Oh, you know, that's interesting. I, ah, you know, I'm trying to think. I wasn't actually, I was weirdly, like, not super plugged in to the industry in that sense, right? 
like I think the the only game that I remember like a there being a huge sort of fervor around its release on Super Nintendo was Street Fighter 2. Hmm. That's one that I remember a big like oh my gosh Street Fighter 2 is coming to consoles. It's like it's it's coming it's coming to Super Nintendo specifically. It wasn't on Genesis at first. And then uh didn't play as well on the Genesis either. Well, eventually Championship Edition came out on the Genesis, I think, but sure. and well, eventually Mortal Kombat came out and then that's all everybody was playing on the Genesis. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so and anyway, I guess to answer your question, Marcus, is like I don't remember a, what what the sort of like PR or like marketing strategy was behind it. I just remember I just remember it being a game that like I played and liked and my friends played and liked, you know? Okay. I ask is like I still like I was six, I still would have been like the age to play this game. I was playing games <laughs> actively at that point. And like I had other super like I got Donkey Kong Country that year, which launched and I remember that blowing my mind at the time. But like one of the reasons why I never got into Metroid until later was that I just I didn't have friends that were into the series. So it just wasn't something that was talked about the way like Mario and I didn't have friends either. It's okay, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get friends till about 2010 when I played Super Metroid. Yeah, makes um, sense. Yes. But uh <laughs> but yeah, so like I, I always wondered like how did I Whenever I don't like when I miss a, a like a landmark game in its day, and I I was wondering like how did I miss that? Like, what was I just oblivious to like a giant like cultural phenomenon? Because like Doom was the same thing. I mean, I was younger, but like I don't remember the Doom stuff. I remember playing it once at like my mom's friend's house of all places. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> but I was completely unaware of like the the impact that it was having. I think it's easy to underestimate in a time before, you know, like the internet sort of provided this kind of unifying gathering place for people, right? That like how much of what you consumed was really just word of mouth through what your, through what your friends were doing. Right. Like so many games that I played were things like, Oh, I played this at so-and-so's house and I like it. Or a friend tells me, Hey, have you played blank? No, I haven't. Oh, you would like it. You should check it out. You know, it's because in 1994, it's not like you can just go to Metacritic and see what the highest scoring games of, you know, the year are or whatever. So you guys weren't reading Game Pro or Nintendo Power cover to cover or Game Informer for that matter. I wasn't subscribed to anything. My I was I would go to like grocery stores and like flip through them. You know, like you're like, hey, mom, I'm going to go over here while you do the boring stuff sure and then, like, kid go to this other end of the store and i won't watch you i mean <laughs> i was a good kid uh we played but, this game where we were like yeah. mom i'm gonna hide you're not gonna see me don't worry i'm watching you <laughs> i just learned to pretend like i was a spy or something i was like you're not gonna see me i was like <laughs> see that's that's why I, I, I think maybe something about like hey i'm telling you specifically where i'm gonna be and i have no desire to be anywhere else in the store because this has like this has the wrestling and the game magazines. I'm just going to flip through those. So, like, I know, like, throughout a good chunk of the 90s, that's how I would find some games that I just didn't hear about from friends. And then before, like, demo discs kind of became a thing. I would, like, if I didn't see it in those, like, few minutes of, like, oh, I'm just flipping through Nintendo. Pa- oh, what's Super Metroid? Oh, that looks cool. It's coming out when? And then, you know, shove it in your mom's face. Like, we got to get this. Well, usually it was, like, this thing is out now. 
usually was like, oh, this thing's been out for what, three months? I don't even know. It'd be it'd be to the point where like, oh, this thing I was waiting for, it's probably out by now, right? Like you just sort of like, this is the thing I'm excited for. And then you try to forget about it for months until like one day you're like, oh, maybe that's out now and I can go play it. Marcus, you want to lead us through the narrative thing? So yes, ladies and gentlemen, now we've built up to the story of Super Metroid, the epic tale of uh, Samus's adventure, which at this point it would be her third, but it's funny because in the, the timeline itself, it's actually later. Like the entire Prime series would have already taken place. Oh yeah, they've this shoved point. a lot of things in between all the spots. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is like an older Samus that has already seen quite a lot of action at this point. But um, it pretty much picks up right after the events of Metroid 2, where, you know, in that game, Samus murdered countless Metroids, and they were pretty much presumed to be extinct, with the exception of one baby Metroid that she captures and takes back to Ceres? Is it Ceres? Ceres? I don't know how you say it. Michael Ceres. But it's a planet that's got a space colony of scientists, and she leaves it with them. Because they think like, hey, we can, uh, we discovered that we can maybe harness some, uh, some energy from this thing that would actually be a benefit to not mankind, I guess, space kind, everyone in the Galactic Federation. This will be great. It's the thing. Metroids are weapons of mass destruction, basically. Yeah, well, I, I guess they can be. In this case, they're trying to use it for good. So it's like, is a Metroid a tool in that case and not so much a weapon? kind of depends what you're intending. What good were they trying to do? Were they going to like cure something? Were they going to create nuclear fusion? There's like a, a Metroid has some ability to like manipulate energy, right? So I think that's what it that's what they were getting into. It's like they can in addition to depleting something's energy or life force, maybe they can generate it. Yeah, like I don't think they were going to shove a Metroid into like a car engine and just <laughs> use them as batteries that <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if it's like Mr. Krabs having a jellyfish farm from uh, SpongeBob or a factory. Honestly, though, if they sold car batteries that looked like Metroids, I think people would buy them. Oh, my. If I if Pimp My Ride was still a thing, I would get on that <laughs> show and just really ram home that I like Metroid so that I could open the hood and see that he shoved the Metroid <laughs> engine in there. Honestly, though, gosh, it's so stupid because you'd never see it, but it's under your hood. But yeah, it would be cool to think about. Or you do like the, I'm not a car guy, you know, like on the hot rods, it's got the little engine that's on the hood, the like mm. big metal thing that I guess is also the engine like that, but it's a Metroid. So now everyone can see it. You could just throw that on as like a hood ornament. I mean, I guess, yeah, if you wanted to be more decorative, that'd probably be easier. You're, you have good ideas. You should make cars. It's not like the Metroid <laughs> is actually powering anything in the scenario. It's like an engine designed I mean, to look like a Metroid a real... or, a, or a hood ornament that looks like a metro it's the same thing <laughs> listen ben if you want to be a real fan you want to harness the power of the metroid like the scientist on saris we're trying to do that's right and everything and everything on that science station goes okay right uh yeah they uh find a uh, perpetual energy world peace uh no as soon as it's funny as soon as samus leaves like the moment she steps out of there uh they get super duper attacked <laughs> by the uh space pirates of course, uh, Samus's uh, long-running foes, and they uh, slaughter every single person wearing a lab coat in that place because they want that baby Metroid for themselves. And so Samus gets a distress call. She goes back. She's too late. They've, uh, you know, they've taken uh, the 
the Metroid baby, uh, Ridley, has done this. Well, I was going to say, by they, I mean, I always just thought it was just Ridley. Ridley just shows up in a clean shop. Is it supposed to be like yeah, old game of space pirates? Maybe. I, I guess it is technically just Ridley. I mean, it, that, that would be enough. <laughs> I don't yeah. think anyone there can stand up to a terrifying, powerful pterodactyl man thing. This is the game where Ridley uh, really becomes a foe that you're like, oh, this guy's cool. I want to fight him every game. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time he actually looked cool, right? Because, like, his sprite in Metroid looked... It was real you know, lame. It's in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but in Super Metroid, it seems like that's where they hit their stride of, like, let's really make him look, like, like genuinely intimidating. Well, Craig, too. Craig, like, turned the other, like, major... Another major boss in Super Metroid. Also, like, who was in the original Metroid looks... He's just huge and awesome looking now. Yeah, I always thought they, in a good way, I always thought he looked more gross. Like, it seemed like they, he got grosser as they went yeah, along, yeah. where Ridley just got cooler. <laughs> that's true, yeah. <laughs> but that's good, because it makes you want to, like, shoot Kraid in the face, because you're like, get that thing out of my screen. Mm-hmm. So yes, Ridley has the Metroid larva, and uh, takes it back to the Space Pirates, and set, escapes and follows Ridley back to Planet Zebes, which, of course, is the setting of uh, Metroid 1. And she discovers that the uh, pirates have rebuilt their little base there, which uh, she had destroyed, which she played in uh, Zero Mission. Hold on, I figured it out. In the UK, they call it Zebbies. That makes more sense. Game full, full circle joke totally landed. <laughs> <laughs> nice work, Ben. I, it's, yeah, it's Z- I just. <laughs> yeah, I call it Zaxby's personally. Zaxby's. I like to think that's what they call it in Making really good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a front for the space pirates. Behind all that delicious chicken is a Metroid farm for villainous purposes. It's, it's funny to me that we're going through a, the lore to Metroid, Super Metroid, by the way, because like everything that you've said so far, Marcus, is like the first, yeah, like the first ten minutes of the game, and then I feel like there just isn't any story until the very end of the game. Does that about right? Yeah, like at this point. You know, you get back to Zeebs and kind of the game kicks off in proper. You're just kind of making your way through Zeebs. You're fighting four bosses who are Zebesian, like in terms of like they're native to the planet. I, I guess Zach's Bezians, uh, you know, Creed is uh, one of them, of course. And uh, the other interesting thing, though, is that you're encountering uh, failed clones of Metroids. That are cleverly called mock troids because they're mocking Metroids. You get it? Yeah. They're all over the place, those mock troids. And you guys thought Zed Bees was a bad pun? So So when when you first run into them, I remember being terrified because like if you if you played the original Metroid, those like the Metroids are a huge pain in the butt. You have to freeze them first, then you have to blast them with missiles. If they get onto you, they are impossible, or not impossible, they are very difficult to get off, and they suck your life super fast, right? You're gonna ball up, and then, yeah, it is super pain in the ass, and it takes forever to get them off. Yeah, so, when I was playing Super Metroid for the first time and ran into a Mach-Troid, I'm like, oh no, it's a Metroid! And I, like, shot him with my gun, and he just died. Like, I didn't need to switch to my missiles or anything, and I was just like, man! Metroids are way easier in Super Metroid. They really, they really made them, you know, a lot weaker now. 
and it wasn't until later that I kind of, uh, well, so like towards the end of, of the game when you're going back, you know, to fight Mother Brain again, then you fight real Metroids again. And then it, it's awesome because it gives you that, oh, holy crap. No, these are the real ones and I'm in trouble kind of moment again, which is amazing. That's a cool way to communicate that, too, because I feel like today I've gotten a heads up through like maybe an audio log or a text thing. saying like, hey, we tried to make Metroids and they didn't come out great. So they're actually not as good. You can kill them pretty easily. Yeah. Like, so you, like you have to shoot them and like, it's like, you say, surprise, like, whoa, that actually worked. They're just, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, that's the old mock droids. Just, uh, you know, bootleggers. Never works. <laughs> it's the blank CDs of Metroids. Uh, so yeah, like Samus continues to kind of clean house here. She's going through the pirate base. She's uh, discovering that the Metroids have uh, somehow reproduced. Uh, and also discovers a a single Metroid that has grown to a, an enormous size. It's gigantic, and it attacks Samus and uh, almost kills her, pretty much. Like, comes very close to killing her. Um, but at the last second, it kind of stops. And it turns out that this uh, gigantic Metroid is the baby Metroid that was taken. And it kind of remembers Samus as, like, its mother, basically. And it's like, oh, crap. I almost sucked my mom. I almost to sucked death. my mom dry because she's. Yeah, it thinks that because she saved it at the end of Metroid Two, right? That's the idea. Yeah. yeah. There was a bunch of uh, quotes from Sakamoto, who, you know, they obviously were developing this independently of Metroid Two, but they knew the story of Metroid Two. And there's that like scene at the end of Metroid Two that's kind of like tossed off, like, "Oh, she discovers an alien," and I think it's just supposed to be. Who knows what happens next? It's sort of like intriguing, but they're like, we really want to know what happens to that Metroid and Samus. And they take the ball and run with it in a kind of an interesting direction that I don't think they were really teeing up in Metroid 2. I don't think they were expecting like, oh, it's going to be your baby Metroid now. Yeah. If you had told that story, like if there was like a story in between Metroid 2 and Super Metroid, like that'd pretty much be the Mandalorian, right? Like, little baby Metro is basically Baby Yoda. Like, you just, they're hanging out, going on adventures and stuff, and that kind of establishes why they're, like, tight. Cool. What's the baby Metroid's name? Oh, man. Mark Troy. No, you're just gonna... Okay, Mark Troy is actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like how you considered it yeah. for a second. Well, at first, I was gonna be, like, you don't want to run into the Baby Yoda situation where everyone's mad when they learn Baby Yoda's real name, so you just keep calling it Baby Metroid. But I think if you call it Mark Troid, uh, then then that's pretty good. But another right. thing, another forward. awesome thing about that moment where you first run into the, you run into the giant Metroid is like okay, so this is you've killed all the bosses. You're in the like mother mother brains like big final base again as you're going through mm-hmm. it, and you run into this room where you just you see some like stationary versions of enemies that you fought. And you're like, why aren't these enemies moving? And why are they all gray? And then you walk into one and it just like, just like crumbles into dust in front of you. And you're like, oh. And then there's like a much bigger, like a much bigger, tougher enemy that's also like that. And you run into it and it crumbles into dust to give you that sense of like, oh crap, whatever's here, like killed one of those things. So this is going to be tough. And sucked it dry dust even yeah exactly yeah it just like sucks these things into dust and then the giant metroid comes in so it's like 
the game does such a good job of communicating to you, like, you are in trouble before the trouble even yep. shows up. Yeah. And we talked about that cinematic storytelling. Like, they were trying to, like, tell this tale all wordlessly pretty well, I feel like, with the Metroid sacrifice. Yeah. Metroid, oh, yeah. Your Friday mother brain. You think you're about to die because mother. I don't know about you guys. When I first played it, I died a couple of times. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not too proud to admit that I died a couple times. It took me a couple of tries, but yeah, then, then she's got you on the ropes and the Metroid comes and saves you. Like, I thought that was a cool moment that you didn't see a lot of that in games. Yeah. It's like the, it's almost like a Terminator two kind of a thing, right? It's like, Oh, the bad guy is now your friend. That kind of deus ex machina moment of like, it also confirms what the scientists had suspected too. Like, Oh, these things can like, they can help people. They can heal you know us that's what we were trying to figure oh, yeah. out so from so from the story perspective samus gets down there for, sorry i don't want to steal this from you marcus but just oh, real no. quick like samus gets down there encounters mother brain it looks exactly like she looked in metroid basically where she's just in a, like a brain in a little glass container so you blast the glass container you kill her you think you've won and then her head just comes up on top of this giant weird gross like Akira style body. <laughs> and then you have like a second fight with her. And she has this weird energy beam that she shoots out of her eye that just blasts you against the wall. You can't move. And it just like takes away like 400 health with every blast. So it wears you down real quick. So the awesome moment here that, that I think Ben was talking about the cinematic storytelling is when it gets you down to like you have like a box, like one bar of health left, essentially. And you see her head rear back and she's getting ready to shoot that beam again. And you know, like, I don't have the energy left to take another one of those. She's going to kill me and I have no idea what I could have possibly done to avoid that in this fight. And then just as she's about to shoot, like the last second, the giant Metroid comes in, clasps onto her head, and basically like absorbs this super powerful energy beam that she was shooting. And at the same time, sucks Mother Brain's energy just like totally dry. So then she turns into like a sort of gray, ashy looking monster as the Metroid comes and then gives all of that power to Samus. Yeah. And juices you up. So you can juices you up. up. And then Mother Brain comes to life. But the trick is now Samus has the hyper beam, which is that ridiculous beam that Mother Brain was shooting and destroying you with. Except now you're shooting it out of your arm cannon. And this is just one of the most horrifying sound effects in video games ever, I think, <laughs> is when you hit her with it her head like rears back and she squeals in pain. In my memory, it's like this dinosaur, like T-Rex, like howl almost. Yeah. Yeah. And like the awesome thing about this is like this, at this point, this boss fight isn't even a boss fight. It's like, a like you've already won. There's no contest here. You're just blasting. It's just this awesome moment where the developers are saying, Hey, you're at the end of the game. Let's just give you this ridiculously powerful weapon and have you just trounce your lifelong nemesis here with this ridiculously powerful gun. So you're just blasting her with it. She could basically do nothing to hurt you. And you win. 
but then it's like bittersweet too because like the metroid gets oh yeah i forgot that part yeah yeah. like it's like you don't have a heart for metroids yeah yeah (laughs) yeah mark poor mark troid gets blown up that's your baby uh, mother brain and so it's almost like a like a revenge killing at that point it's like oh like you effed up here you like but like in its final sacrifice it gave me the hyper beam yeah, and now I'm gonna blow you to pieces. Yes, so it's sitting there eating all this punishment from Mother Brain because it's feeding all of that energy into Samus, who's down to like no health. So it's like it it chooses to give Samus all of this power, but it yeah dies in the process. Jumping back just a quick second, like when you first show up, I remember we talked about this during the Metroid podcast where like it's you're just fighting a brain in a jar basically, and mm-hmm. it's like all the guns around the room are doing all the work and this brain in the jar feels kind of helpless. Yeah. I remember thinking that was was weird and kind of lame. And when I got to Super Metroid at the end of the game, I'm like, wait, this is just the same thing again. Yeah. Like it feels like they're I was like, this is disappointing. And then nope, it's it rips out and it's got this crazy mech body. I you're right. There is something Akira like to it, Joe. I don't think I've ever made that connection before, but there is this like weird body horror aspect to it that yeah that makes it extra frightening and chilling and also like i need to take this thing and 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 hr geiger there too by the way yeah probably yeah mother brain took some self-defense classes since metroid (laughs) i should probably learn how to fight for myself were you guys (laughs) a captain in the game master fans or did you watch that show i wouldn't say i was a fan but i watched it Well, nobody who watched it I, was really a fan. Right? I mean, remember that dumb voice Mega Man had? It was yeah. the worst. Well, I was gonna bring up hey, the up, I was gonna bring up the dumb voice that Mother Brain had. I didn't watch it in its day. I, I caught like, you know, the Mario Super Show and stuff, but I, I didn't catch Captain in its time. It was something I discovered when I became like a teenager and an adult and I watched a bunch of episodes like in the early days of YouTube and it was like I'm I I didn't miss it. You're saying you watched an episode of <laughs> captain in the game master and that's how you became an adult yes that was my uh passage into manhood actually <laughs> it was like you have to watch this entire series it's no arthur and if so. you don't die <laughs> oh god oh I mean, what is <laughs> also i mean arthur just it's only now wrapping up like the the series finale is this year after like 25 oh, wow. years um <laughs> uh, can't captain n can't say that i remember we got an Arthur CD-ROM in when I was in junior high, and like the librarian was all excited about it. And I was like vaguely aware of Arthur. I was like, "Oh, that that kid show that I'm I'm above now because I'm in junior high." <laughs> Too, <laughs> Too cool, cool for, Arthur. for Arthur now. And the fact that this show is still on—that's incredible. Yeah, I know. Low key, one of the longest running, it might be the longest running kid animated kid show. Honestly. Wow. Yeah. Bring back Captain and the Game Master. That's that was my main point here. There's just like that should be the next Illumination movie after they get done with Mario. Gosh, I would it'd be incredible to do something with that property. Yeah. Chris Pratt as Captain N. He could do it. Yeah. Of course he can. I mean, yeah, that's basically the end of Metroid, right? I mean, you just have the the end sequence. They give you two countdown timers to run through. It's like three minutes, I think, total. But yeah, this time, you know, the first game, it was just their base that blew up. Uh, this time, the whole planet explodes. So if nothing else, it means that they can't set up shop there yeah. anymore. Oh. But also, it, 
it wiped out the Chozo homeworld. <laughs> so, eh, give and take, I guess. And then an, an awesome, another awesome little detail that I love is like if you go while you're escaping, if you're fast enough, you can go to the area. I think it's where you first got the. Maybe it's where you got the bomb. Anyway, there, there's an area where those the little animals, like the native life, the one who taught you how to use the like the hyper jump, that weird bird looking thing, and those little guys that taught you how to do the wall jump, they're like trapped in a room, and you can help save them so they are able to escape the planet. Oh, if you what? take a if, if, yeah, if you take a little detour as you're escaping the planet, you can find this room that you can basically help these little guys escape. Or you can leave them there, and then they just blow up with the rest of the planet. Wait, how do they get off planet? They come with you on your ship? It's not clear. <laughs> okay. Well, they taught you how to high jump, so they just jumped really high off the planet. <laughs> jumped in orbit. Yes. Huh. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember if I stumbled upon that or not. Sounds like you left them to dive in. No. Totally. I forgot about them. Well, when you've got... it's It's... It's definitely out of your way. So when you've got that, especially the first time you're playing, right? It's like, if you've got that timer going, you're like, I'm getting back to my ship. Why would you take the time to, like, explore an area you know you don't need to go? So, uh, Gotta get these last upgrades. Yeah. (laughs) Missile pack. I might find another (laughs) mother brain. But yeah, I mean, so, yeah, the little little touches like that are are really cool. And uh, that is really cool. I think the last thing we can say about the lore is that uh, this game segues pretty much immediately into the events of uh, Metroid Other M, uh, which I'm sure everyone's looking forward to hearing about. It was totally intentional, too. I'm sure they were setting it up. They were teeing it up. They're like, we know we're going to get back to this eventually. Oh, yeah. It was like George Lucas. They had it written down. Like, we got to wait for technology to get to the point where they can handle this story. That's what they said about Dread. (laughs) They are following George Lucas's... (laughs) Yeah, pretty much, actually. <laughs> That's wild. Uh, I don't buy that. <laughs> any final thoughts on Super Metroid? I, I mean, I feel like it's a game we could obviously talk about for a long time. Just its legacy. Like, obviously, Metroidvania is like a genre now. and That's because of this game in large part. Yeah, I was going to bring up that, like, the term Metroidvania. I mean, this I'm not saying we should do this, but like it it would be more accurate if you called it Super Metroidvania because, like, every game is aping Super Metroid, not the original Metroid. Uh, so, like, I think I said in episode one, like, where would games be, like, in the last, we'll say, like, 10 years, maybe 12, without Metroid? And it's like, yeah, that's true to an extent, but, like, without Super Metroid, a lot of games really don't happen right now. Like, you know, Metroid introduced it, but Super Metroid perfected it. Yeah, and I actually, I I tend to avoid the phrase Metroidvania when I can also, because I think, (laughs) I think part of this has to do with just my loyalty to Super Metroid in general, and it's like, you know, I I view Super Metroid as the originator there, and I don't necessarily want to give Castlevania shared credit. Uh, And Castlevania definitely did some, like, did some interesting things with that formula right but i think it's also i think the castlevania style of, for a game like this is also distinct enough that it's like i kind of deserves to be its own thing like i don't know maybe th- this is obviously me as a fan just kind of like splitting hairs with it we need like symphony of the night likes or something oh. 
even with sympathy sympathy for the devil uh there's <laughs> there's interviews out there with igarashi who is the director of symphony of the night where he straight up says like when they were making that game they're like yeah we were looking at super metroid that we wanted to make one of those games like they were taking inspiration and they did a good job i like symphony of the night i think it's a little less polished than super metroid uh, for some of the reasons i said earlier but it's still a good game mm. But yeah, the fact that it gets shared credit is maybe the one thing I'll say is they sort of kept the dream alive, you know, for for a long time. There weren't a lot of Metroid like games and the Castlevania games were the games to go to and play. That's true. Yeah. Back in back in 2004, 2005, when. There was just Metroid Dread was the name of a rumored 2D game that never actually surfaced. There were tons of Castlevania. Uh, like Castlevania Advance and Castlevania DS games that were coming out, sort of filling the gap there before that indie renaissance of the genre that Marcus was talking about. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to disrespect Castlevania in any sense. I guess that's not, that's not my intent there, but I feel like when it comes to naming the genre, it's just, it's a super Metroid style game. Yeah. I feel like Metroid made really only plays if it because when i think of the vania part like i think of like rpg yep elements yep. like that's what castlevania brought in super metroid doesn't do that yeah so like i'll you'll see metrovania thrown onto games like no that's just straight up metroid you're not leveling up or equipping anything like when you have that then yes it's a metroid vania but then at that point like oh is it just castlevania yeah and, that well, and that's that's exactly what i was talking about <laughs> when i was splitting hairs before yeah. is i think i think that they are that that is an important distinction that sort of creates a fork in this kind of like side-scrolling, exploratory kind of game. But it's different enough that I don't like lumping them together. But they are both good in their own ways. Man, Joe, what happens if they make a Metroid game where you can level up? Oh, boy. Then what do you call it? Then it's an actual Metroid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an interesting comparison, though, like the level up thing. Like, I remember Ratchet and Clank when they introduced leveling up. I think it was in the second one. Like that was a new thing for platformers back then. But we don't call like games like that now Mario and Clank likes. You know, like they're not like (laughs) there's well, I mean it's still role playing mechanics, right? It's it's all it is. It's just like RPG likes. Then, you know, like Castlevania Symphony of Night is just a Castlevania game with RPG stuff in it. That's also got a Metroid map. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if you if you dive too deep into what defines a genre and what you call them, like that's just like that's just a kind of semantic hell that I do not want to dwell in. Or another one would be like shooters with level up mechanics, be called like Doomerlands, because I don't know, like was it, was it Borderlands <laughs> and Doom, like trying to mash up? I don't know. It just doesn't feel like it. Anyway. Okay, Boomerland. Boomerland. And uh, sorry, uh, one one more awesome weird thing that I want to point out about this game is that it has a very distinct nightmarish moment that really freaked me out when I was a kid, because there's there's a fight against this weird dinosaur looking thing called the Crocomire. It's like a the red monster. It's got a bunch of eyeballs down the side of it. It's like a bird looking dinosaur thing. Anyway. The way you kill it is by driving it into the lava. And there's this horrifying moment when you, that it's like, 
it is burning alive in the lava. Its skin is melting off, and you see its bones underneath as it's like ushering forth these cries of pain. And Samus is just like standing there. She's like, yep, I sure drove that monster into the boiling lava. It's just it's just this like really creepy, gruesome death that I do not think would fly in a Nintendo, like a first party Nintendo game anymore. Let's give you the thumbs up at the very end. <laughs> but so like it's I don't know. If you're inclined to look up uh Krakam- the Krakameyer death online, you could see how like if you were young enough when you're playing that, it's uh, unsettling. That's what I was talking about earlier with the HR Geiger inspiration. Like, I don't yeah, think yeah. that flies anymore either. I don't think you can be like, hey, Miyamoto, we want to make this the new Pikmin game. We're really inspired by Geiger. <laughs> We're going to like, I, I don't think you can introduce a new series uh, like Metroid these days. It's such a weird one off for Nintendo. Yeah. Yeah. And it still feels like the it still feels like the redheaded stepchild of their first party stuff. I think that's part of it. I think they don't totally know what to do with it because of that i mean partly partly that and partly it's like not their highest seller but so like on some level it's like well thanks for when you do give us a new one that's great yeah i still don't get it i know i talked about this in metroid one i just don't understand how it's not a big thing in japan it seems like it has everything you would want to be a big hit here's the cool space bounty hunter shooting things in an alien world that's like that should speak across everything right I, i'm always it, it always boggles my mind when i like when I'm reminded of that, like, how is this not, yeah. <laughs> how is this not a bigger deal? Well, I mean, and I, I'm glad that after all these years that Nintendo is returning to it and, you know, giving it, giving it another shot. And Marcus, to your point, I'm glad that, that Super Metroid spawned like such a, like such a contingent of awesome games that draw inspiration from it. Because for people like me and you guys too, I assume there's just like, I just love this genre and it's awesome to to have so much great stuff out there like this to play still. Yeah. Yeah. It's my junk food genre. I've come to figure like I can just keep devouring these and I never get tired. Of yeah. Them. The corn dog of games. Yeah. Metroidvania on a stick. Yeah. Roll it in batter. Oh man. There we go. Sounds delicious. I'd eat one. I'll take two. I think uh, I think we did it. We did it. We talked all about Super Metroid. Joe, appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for yeah. coming. Thanks for having me. Good good to see you guys again. Anything you want to plug or anything you want to say to the people at home? No, not really. We were talking ahead of time, but we were like, oh, we, we didn't bring it up, but there's this speedrunner interview you did on the Game Informer site way, way long ago, but it sounds pretty yeah. interesting if people want to check out this uh, interview with the speedrunner. Yeah, I guess that, that that's something related that I can plug and, or point people towards. Uh, back in 2014, we had a guy uh, who uh, goes by Golden, who is was plugged in, is plugged into sort of like the Metroid speedrunning community, and he would commentate on uh, awesome games done quick runs and stuff like that. So me and Dan Reichert had him in the studio and just had him walk us through some of the um, some of the little like tricks and small details and some just like the fascinating minutia of Super Metroid and how some of those really fast times are possible. So he's he's not necessarily like the best speedrunner himself, but he knows the tricks and he's you know he 
performs them for us. He's very he was the first one to point this out. Like, hey guys, I'm not the I'm not the best. I'm not an expert here. But he's much better than he points out. And he illustrates some of these some of these tricks that the speedrunners use to like really shave off seconds. And it is just for someone like me who's has such a like deep love for Super Metroid, watching watching it break in all of these different remarkable ways was really a treat. So yeah, you should look up. Uh, it's on GameInformer.com. I believe it's called Speedrunning Super Metroid, A Guided Tour. Well, thanks again, Joe, for being on the show. Thank you, Marcus, for being here, as always. Thank you out there for listening to this episode of Video Gameography. Please leave us a review, like us, love us, and uh, come back next time. We're going to cover Metroid Fusion. Hey, make sure you take care of your Marktroids as well. 